For the last decade, poets have gotten together every month during the academic year at the Bishop Bar in Bloomington. There's a stage in the back room. The evening starts with an open mic, and then there's a slam. Poets try to win over judges picked from the audience. It's basically American Idol for the Bloomington slam scene. I think of the slam less as a competition to be taken seriously and more of a community ritual. Okay, maybe the competition isn't the most important part. It's really about creating a space where people feel like they belong. This week on Interstates, we've got a report from that poetry slam. But we're going to start with a story about the teen space at the local public library. As you'll hear, the teens there are accomplished and splendid and wise. Teens and Poets, coming up after this. A few months ago, I went to the teen space at the Monroe County Public Library. That's my local library. Our teen space has been around since 2015. It's still a pretty new thing for libraries, but our library at least has been thinking hard about how they can serve people at every stage of life. While I was at the teen space, Sam Ott, he's the teen services manager, he introduced me to some of the teens who hang out there. You'll hear Sam in the background a couple of times. I talked with the teens about what the space means to them. We also talked about the state of the world, what it's like right now being a teen, and how adults' worries are maybe a little off base. There was a lot of wisdom, even if they didn't feel especially wise themselves. Anyway, here it is. Hope you enjoy. Grandpa called me achieved and splendid today. So, yeah. Congratulations. Thank you so much. It's my pride and joy, being accomplished and splendid. What do you, uh, what do you spend your time doing here? Eating and sleeping. No, I'm <laughs> I don't know. What do we do here? Yeah, I mean, we just hang out and yeah. talk and play it's games. Nice kind of become a rendezvous point, basically. Like, if I'm going to meet up with people, it'll probably be here more than any other place. It just feels like a very accepting and warm little place, and I think that it's it's just sweet. It feels like everyone it feels like everyone wants to be here, and we all have fun, and it's nice. I I would say that there are some, some people, people who, who are. I think you would say jocks, especially. Would not 100%, like... Don't come here most often because the people surrounding them are nerds. I don't see a lot of people who play football. And I think that the activities that are going on, while they would be welcome, they don't have much interest in. I know they probably wouldn't enjoy playing D&D, and maybe they think that doing a lip-sync contest is embarrassing. I feel like it does draw in a lot of people who, like are lonely like me and just need like somewhere to go and hang out maybe get away from things and it does attract like it attracts a nice crowd of people who are very accepting in that way because they know what it feels like to be like like probably alone or just like maybe bored too <laughs> but yeah i've never like been in a institution that has been so accommodating to every person every type of person um it's, it's a very, very accommodating and accepting space to be in. I remember it started being built when I was 11, and I used to ask my siblings, do you think I could pass for being 12 and get in there? Because, like, I think I could. And they're like, no, no, it's a bad idea. I'm like, no, 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 I can do it. So I was always really excited about this space because, um, you know, graduating from the little kid area and not really have, it's either, it was either little kid area or big adult area. And it's like, you're not really ready for those. So I was really excited about it. 
there was a wedding between two plastic rats at one point, and they were the person, one of the people who works at the um, library bookstore, is like Mike. Yeah, Mike. It's like ordained, or it's like a, it's like has the ability to legally marry people, and so although you can't legally marry two plastic rats, did everything you would do in a normal legal marriage with those two plastic rats. And then there was a whole ceremony with ice cream and pizza and stuff like that to celebrate the Von Rats wedding, because they were called the Von Rats. And they're, they're over there on the desk. You can see them. They've got scarves on. With their wedding album. Yeah, with the, with the Von Rat wedding album. That's not something that happens a lot of times with adults. You don't feel like you have a connection with them outside of maybe like your parents sometimes if you're lucky. And so it's just really nice to have like a cool comfy space where the people who run it, they like, they actually give a crap. It's got everything you need for eternity. We recently- Until, Except that you'll turn 20 eventually. Oh yeah, yeah when you turn 20 you kind of got to leave, but yeah, from 12 to 20, you could basically survive in here. How are teens doing right now? And like, how are you doing? Um. <laughs> um. Oh. Wow. Uh, how? Well, I would. I'm think I'm. I don't mean to be really negative right off the bat because I usually try to look on the bright side of things, but I think it's really hard, especially for a lot of um, queer and trans youth and a lot of marginalized communities and people of color and stuff. Like, it's not. It's not looking great. I'm happy. I th at most most times, but just based on what I see, I guess like in my friend groups and by people is I don't know. I guess most teenagers I know do really mentally struggle, wouldn't you say? And I think that um, I don't know what to say about that. But why is that? I don't. That was the thing that came to my mind when you asked what adults think. Um, or like miss out on is the social media part, which that's always what my mom will say. She will be like, well, it's because of your phone or it's because of, and that's why I have like anxiety or whatever. So I do think that that's probably something that adults think, but I also think that there's truth to that, obviously, because all of us are constantly getting information from social media. It's never ending, really. And I think that that probably does contribute a little to like struggling and... Why? Um, I mean, there's always a thing of like comparing yourself. That's the big, a big thing for teenagers, I think, is like what you see on social media not being real. But I don't know. I also think that you have a little box that can tell you everything that is happening in the world at every moment. That is impossible to ignore. It's impossible to not be on that constantly. It's impossible to like, you have everything in your pocket. Everything that has ever existed is you can view. And that's impossible. To, it's impossible to not do that. Is there like is it good or bad or? Um, it's, I it's I don't think it can be categorized into good or bad. I think there have been positive effects and there have been negative effects. I think it would be kind of foolish <laughs> to to try to say that it's a net bad or a net good. I don't think that's possible. That seems wise. I don't know. I don't know. I wouldn't call myself wise. I haven't experienced enough to call myself wise. It's kind of weird to grow up with like seven different existential crises going around all at the same time while also watching your parents have a midlife crisis too. You said like you're, you managed to be fairly happy. What do you see in the people around you? I see people that kind of just, I think, 
don't want to ex- like acknowledge it, acknowledge, and I, I keep calling it it. It's just everything. It's all right. I, there's so many things combined. It's not bleak, but it is really difficult to try and balance it all and to balance like the big problems with the little ones. And then like with the big problems, it feels kind of like little problems. You're like, oh, my friend hasn't messaged me in an hour. It's like, that doesn't matter. The world is on fire. I mean, it is overdone, but climate change and that like people in Congress and in, in, in every place in government do not represent any of the interests that people my age have. I think they're very worried about us. What do you think they're worried about? I don't know. I think they're worried that we're going to... I don't know exactly what, but I think my, my parents and a lot of other parents seem very paranoid about the people we talk to, especially in what I've heard people call the online age. And I've noticed that a lot of parents also want to protect their kids from the drama of being a teenager and like, don't get into all these things. You can stop all these arguments and all these fights and stuff. And I think it's important to have that drama because it kind of teaches you how to deal with conflict when the stakes are low. And even happens with me, like I have a littler sister who's going through middle school right now and I'm listening to all the things she says and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's like so tiny in the grand scheme of things. And it, but you know, you never want to invalidate somebody with that because in the moment, like babies, I always think about, they cry because like they can't, like they don't, like they're hungry. And that's a problem that's fixed in a second, but to them, it's the whole world. So do the stakes feel low to you? A lot of people at my school and in high school and stuff, especially at my school, seventh graders this year, seem to think things are a lot bigger than they are. And I feel like for a lot of my life, I've sort of understood I'm in eighth grade. I don't really have anything to worry about. The worst thing that's going to happen is this girl's going to side-eye me in the hallway. I'm not going to lose my job over this. You know, I don't have to worry about providing for my livelihood. I I think that a lot of people lose sight of the fact that you're, like, you're 12. No one really cares that much. From what I've noticed about, like, listening to my parents or whoever talk, it's kind of like nobody's ever really happy with where they're at, I guess, when it comes to age or a lot of things. Because if you look at teens, a lot of them want the freedom of being an adult. But if you look at adults, a lot of them want the freedom of being a teen. So I guess it's really important to just, like, I don't know, find the joy in like what age you're in and just like every, wherever you're at and just enjoy it while you can. I feel like actually when I was your age, I was like, adults don't get that this stuff feels serious. But you're kind of saying that like adults are right when they're saying it's not that serious. I think that it can feel really serious and depends on the situation. Of course, no matter what age you're at, breakups can be really hard. But it's still like... In the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter too much, but if you're dealing with a certain issue, it can feel big, especially when you're dealing with stress from school, which I know a lot of people, including myself, deal with a lot. Yeah, I, I see people that kind of don't want to acknowledge it often, that just try to like live like this is not happening and that everything is okay and that it, things will just work itself out without them somehow doing, without them doing something. And I think that's kind of like you, you have to, you have to like... You have, to, you have to acknowledge it and then try to fix it or try to help change it in some way. Like, think about it in, like, a perspective. Like, this isn't going to be an issue forever and you're going to work through this. But, like, don't discredit it, like, now because it's important to you. I am 
probably my most genuine self here than I am in any other place, other than, of course, with like, talking to my immediate family. I started coming because you know, somebody invited me. Yeah. And yeah, I've just, now I'm the one always inviting. I'm like, no, guys, the library's cool. Come on, please, 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 please. The teen space is a sum of its parts. It's a sum of, of all the people that have, have been here before. Awesome. Thank you so much. That was splendid and accomplished. And accomplished of you. <laughs> Thank you so much. You seem pretty splendid and accomplished too. <laughs>was, in order of appearance, Gray, Esther and Zane, Jack, Madden, and Van. Since I did those interviews, a new library branch has opened in town near Bachelor Middle School. There's a teen space there too, and I hear it's bustling. time for a break. When we come back, poets compete for the crown. Or the community, at least. Stick around. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. The Bloomington Poetry Slam started about 10 years ago. It went on hiatus during the pandemic, and it's been back now for about a year. Producer Violet Barron went to check it out. That climax, if you will. Imagine that you hear a line that feels like all the goodness that could ever be felt your fingertips, they're quivering and shivering. Your blood, you feel it in you, but it's not hot. And it's not cold, it's the right temperature. The smell in your nose from hearing that line, it's everything comfortable. How might you respond? Mm, okay, is that how you respond? Let's try it again, like we are not afraid of being loud. Let's get free. Not that loud. Just kidding. Be as loud as you want. Excellent. Great job. You're all amazing. First up, we have Hannah. And on deck, we have B. Give it up for Hannah all the way. Can you tell me a little bit about what's about to happen? Um, yeah, so... We're going to have, I think, seven competitors. Um, everyone's going to do a poem. It's going to be our under three minutes, no props, no costumes. And we're going to do beautiful art, and judges are going to convert that into numbers. And it's just, that's just like the trick of it. That's just to get people interested in it, but it's really just about the poetry. Um, and it's kind of one of Bloomington's best-kept secrets, and I really feel like it's one of the most inclusive spaces in Bloomington. And I think one of the things that makes this show particularly special is that when you attend the Bloomington Poetry Slam, you're not 
going to see a show, it's interactive with the audience, you know, because anyone can sign up for the open mic, anyone can sign up for the slam. Judges are selected at random from the audience. It's a communal space. I think of the slam less as a competition to be taken seriously and more of a community ritual. I'm Dan Sullivan, but everybody calls me Sully. I am the curator and co-host of the Bloomington Poetry Slam. My name is Joseph Harris. I am slamming tonight. Two weeks ago, I was in Columbus, Ohio. I was walking down the street, watching raindrops bounce off the pavement, getting ready to wade into the water myself. When I heard a voice cut through the air like Damascus steel, she said, big boy, let's go get a drink. Before I could say no, she had gathered two more travelers in her wake, and we all bounded to the bar, bemused. She stalked through traffic like we were on the savannah. We, her cornered quarry, and when she finally found her watering hole, her roars reverberated off the walls. She ordered drinks the same way a salty drill sergeant would order a 12-mile march mercilessly. <laughs> she held court like a countess, like a baron. Like a wild warlord ordering armies around, she walked around the room like a red queen, us peons and pawns watching her work after she paid for the drinks and made me find her a stick of gum. She announced in a voice like a judge handing down a life sentence, I am going to the bathroom. <laughs> she never returned. <laughs> disappeared into the night like a daydream evaporating, left us like a one-night stand, like she left us slightly with a slightly confused smile, wondering if we'd ever cross paths again. She left like a lioness returning from the kill and once again blending into the brown blades of grass. And I realized, as a society, we need more motherfucking side quests. <laughs> we need more mischief. More random ramblings. We need to find the things that go bump in the night and rattle their cages until the keys fall out. We need more uncrowned queens buying big brothers drinks. We need to find the one-eyed wanderers who are hiding wings under the trench coats, voices like gravel whiskey begging for favors. We need to eat the tasty cake. Find the fairy circles disguised as mossy mushrooms because our bodies are time bombs. Clocks quickly counting down to zero. Tombstones or in everyone's future, and we waste time on the mundane and monotonous. We have become as exciting as settled stones silently sitting in dirt. We who never wander off roads, who stop dancing in the moonlight, who no longer play freeze tag, we've all learned to be so careful, yeah. move so slowly. We are the astronauts who will never escape velocity. We who are too busy for adventure, who only wake and walk and dredge and die, who stop straying off the beaten path, who only look for paved roads with great big guardrails. We need to refine the wonder wire. We should ask the troubadour if he knows who's haunting the mayor's manor. <laughs> Try to get the drop on a dragon. Free a house elf. Go skydiving. Order off a menu you can't read. Recite, recite a poem off mic and see if the sound opens up a secret door under the stage. <laughs> Maybe we should follow a, force of, follow a force of nature into a random bar on a cold, rainy night in Columbus, Ohio, and just see what happens. Yeah. <laughs>
I help out wherever they need. And sometimes I host, sometimes I co-host, sometimes I just find judges, sometimes I just do poems. So like the, the Swiss Army knife of the group. So I've been slamming since 2002. My home slam is Ann Arbor, second oldest slam in the nation, second only to uh, Chicago, which is the first slam. Poetry's always been a part of my life. I studied poetry for grad school. I used to make my living as a traveling poet. And so it's just always been something that I've done. Uh, so when I moved out here, the first thing I did after I got a house was Googled poetry slams nearby. When I came to visit Bloomington, it felt like Ann Arbor. It felt like home. I think probably part of that is the people here are also from areas that do slams similar to my hometown. So that's how I came out here. And I never left. I got stuck. <laughs> it was a fabulous sticking, yes. I work with students at the school I work at. I actually brought some students here for poetry. So I bring students with me to the slams. For the longest time, I think people felt like poetry belonged to the academics and poetry belongs to the people. I think the connections between like hip hop and spoken word are run deep. Even, you know, Nas, Tupac had books of poetry. So I think it was a real easy thing for spoken word style of slam poetry to jump into those areas. I haven't decided what poems I'm going to do. I have three in my head, so I'm going to choose when I get up there. I'm going to see what I'm feeling, and we're going to do poetry, and it's going to be amazing, and we're going to bring poetry to the people, which is even better. Last question, how do you feel? I feel fantastically well, but far from spectacular, but you got to have goals. The show has always been, for the most part, a word-of-mouth show. When poets get a taste of the stage there and feel for it, they often want to come back. It's really a community that expands well beyond Bloomington and a network of great poets and great people. We were really intent about having some music that made black and brown people feel like they belonged. And also having some music for like the young professional, young adult crowd that seemed to be a bit of a void in Bloomington. I think that's going to be a wide spectrum of things. So, you know, when I say that, I'm talking about like anything from like Coupe de Calais to reggaeton to, you know, hip hop and R&B, soul music, kuduro, salsa. I mean, this is music that everybody loves. But I, I do think that there's something about music that is sometimes produced by and for um, black and brown folks that sonically has a certain feeling to it that might bring back some nostalgia for folks or make people feel at home in a certain kind of way. Got a lot on my mind, but I still can't help but think about you. The twisted tactic you play, my heart feels forced to consume as I understand the chore it is to subdue. I pull myself back as it proves no use. Tell me honestly, how much do you care right now? Oh, not a bit? Seems it's in the air right now. Let me look at you in your face, honest with no resolution. Depict and illustrate my putrid prostitution of love that I beg for you to take. You don't care. And I still can't help but lie in wake, processing every possible mistake while the abyss of the night hides my face and you still don't see me. I spill my blood on your hands and you still won't feel me. As I risk my life to lift yours, you damn me. Manipulate my mind because you know I'm barely standing. Force my hand evil to shame 
and despise you. So when you end your life, you think that I've been lied to. You'd rather kill yourself than repay a debt you feel you owe me. A debt that doesn't exist because I live for us wholly. You're my rock. And I mean beyond sedimentary, fused magma of experience, a journey you accept me. But you still don't care. And like always, I will. Enough for the both of us. As God sends the flood, I'll build the ark to salvage the love that you can't seem to find anymore. Because even then, when you look at me with dead eyes and nothing inside but a face of mine that you seem to despise, I know that you, you care. I'm Gabriel Peoples, and I am DJ Good Peoples at the Poetry Slam. How do you know that it's working, like in the moment? How do you know that the music is producing that kind of vibe for people? There's been countless times people come up to me and they're like, we don't hear this in Bloomington. Thank you. From, you know, I'm from the Mid-Atlantic. I'm from the East Coast. I'm from the West Coast. What you did with that song up there, you know, that was amazing, whatever. But it's the sense that I am providing a kind of service that is a little bit of a void in Bloomington. And so I would say that it's just been the people that come up to me after the event and let me know how they feel. We just celebrated the 10-year anniversary uh, this season. Andrea Sterling and I stepped in five years ago. So Hilda Davis was hosting the show at the time, and uh, Hilda had Andrea and I guest host a couple times. We just felt like the team made sense, you know. Gabriel and Andrea and I just clicked and felt like we shared a vision and have carried on the tradition of the show. I came in with some experience as a host and wanted to make sure that this show continued on because it's an important space. Some people have been really successful at the Poetry Slam. They go on, they move somewhere else. We keep in touch and we invite them back out as features. We try to kind of focus on the Midwestern region. Um, There's a lot of creativity and talent just right here, you know, as opposed to kind of like reaching for some of the superstars that are on the East Coast or West Coast. Sully is really pivotal in terms of that. So was this your first year back after the pandemic? Mm -hmm, Yeah. What happened during the pandemic with the slam? We took some time off and what happened was a lot of um, people graduated, left Bloomington. That's one of the things about a college town is it can be a bit transient. Um, So without that continuity during that time, we did a lot of rebuilding this year. We tried working on uh, some virtual shows, but didn't feel like we could effectively manage the same community experience. We had a couple one-off shows when it looked like things were improving. You know, we did one show and it was great. And, uh, and then, then the Omicron. Or, yeah, then or, Delta uh, hit. Yeah. yeah. One of those. Those variants <laughs> yeah. popping yeah. back. Yeah. 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 So this year we've we've been back in full. Joseph Harris joined the team, hosted some shows. The last, I would say, uh, five shows have been 
you know, the feeling's been back. We've, re- we've effectively rebuilt the show. People are coming out. Poets are excited to take the stage. And we're now turning people away on the open mic and slam that the, it fills up really quickly. Yeah, it was a full house the other night, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We always have a um, sacrificial poet before the poetry slam. It's somebody who's scored as if they're in the competition, but they're not. It gets the judges and the audience acclimated to the way things work. They're a calibration poet, too. But the role of the sacrificial poet has uh, some special responsibilities, too. It's that um, that person is there to bring some energy, get people into the slam and ready for the slam so that responsibility doesn't fall on the first competitor in the show. So the second round, which comes after a break, I want to give that same sort of uh, respect to the performers heading into that round. So I do a poem just to try and get the crowd warmed up again after the break. I don't participate for the most part because, I mean, it's a lot of work just kind of like curating all the music and everything before the slam, keeping up with the deluge of music that is out there and is coming out all the time and trying to, you know, find the things that will coalesce the best, right, with uh, the feeling that we've been cultivating at the slam. If I've been doing it since 2014, minus two years, over that time, I have shared once, <laughs> <laughs> which I think was this past year. Uh, for the 10-year anniversary show. Yeah. 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 I was so happy you hit the stage. And I, I would say for you, it's not only your careful and thoughtful curation of the music, but you're an active listener at the show. So you're responding to people. The music responds to what's happening on stage, too, mm-hmm. which, which may, is such a special part of the show. The format of it is kind of interesting for me as a DJ because it presents its own kind of challenge because it's like, okay, how can I, how can I do a mix, right? In the period of time between we're taking a break, folks are grabbing beers or water or whatever their beverage of choice is. And so it's like between that time and then them returning to their seats sometimes that I'll have like the longest point where I can maybe mix like max three or four songs together. So it's like, hmm, what three or four am I going to try? And then also, okay, I'm still present while people are sharing poems, but I can't play the music while they're sharing poems. Right. How can I still use that same kind of DJ intuition if I'm following the crowd in front of me and like understanding what they're doing? So then the poets become a little bit of my crowd, right? And so yeah. whatever they're doing, I'm like, hmm. I think I have something for that. Sometimes it's sarcasm. Sometimes it is in in alignment with the theme that they're talking about, right? But yeah, I do try to um, be attentive to um, uh, whatever that content is. As a farce, the competition part was never really meant to be taken seriously. It was all. (laughs) It was never meant to be taken seriously. It was never meant to be taken. (laughs) <laughs> seriously it was all a farce <laughs> yeah 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 he, he likes to keep me on my toes all right let's take a quick break when we come back we'll try to figure out how seriously to take the poetry slam
Interstate's Alex Chambers. Producer Violet Barron went to visit the Bloomington Poetry Slam recently, and she talked with two of the slam's three organizers, Dan Sully Sullivan and Gabriel Peoples. Andrea Sterling is the third. One element Andrea brought to the slam was really making sure that people knew what kind of space it was. Usually it's pretty smooth, but different things kind of like happen that made us need to establish like, look, this is a space where we do not condone transphobia. We don't condone misogynoir. We don't condone racism. Okay, keep all that stuff out the door, right? Because if we sense it, that's where you're going to be anyway, right? So it's like we had a couple instances where it's like people brought something that was either kind of like adjacent to that or direct to that. And, you know, we had to kind of like get them out of there. But I think it's just kind of like another factor that helps people to recognize, you know, what kind of space it is in addition to the music that we're going to be playing and in addition to the talent that they're going to hear throughout the night, right? Just another level of reassurance. Over the years, on Docu Hoosiers, for example, we've collaborated with them um, just in terms of making sure that they can do a little bit of fundraising, even within the Poetry Slam, letting people know about what it is they're doing, right, for undocumented folks all throughout the, the state of Indiana. IDOC Watch, we've had to set up a booth and, and be in the building. And I think that the show provides a, a platform for voices who have historically been excluded from a mainstream discourse to have a place to get up and say, this is who I am and this is what I believe. And uh, we celebrate that. And the audience is there. Though even though It's a competition, right? But I, like I said, the competition was never meant to be taken seriously. It was always a way of, of bringing poems and stories to each other. And so even during the competition, the audience and the judges are all encouraged to be supportive. And that's I think that we set that tone early in the show and uh, you can feel it in the room. Have you ever had to sort of enforce it in a more overt way? There has been instances where somebody's said something on stage that is uh, l- language we don't bring into the space. How we've handled that is Andrea and I address it directly after the poem or cut it off if it needs to be cut off, but we address it on stage, in the room, then we follow up with that poet and and have discussions off stage or even after the show. I would say 98% of the time it's just like people understand and they are presenting their depth of understanding, right, through the open mic, through the poetry slam, through their words of affirmation about the space um, between each other and the crowd, so right, with there. me after the show. Uh, this is my first time reading at the slam. I'm very excited. <laughs> Uh, this one, uh, I'm just going to call Melissa, and we're going to leave it at that. Right, Let's speak for itself. Right. My mother ate the bookend slices of bread at the bottom of the plastic Kroger bag. Her children left the deformed little scraps behind to crumble, neglected. But she saw them lovingly, special and rare, like the corner pieces in a brownie pan. Small, dry, brown lumps of flour. To her were treasures, simple pleasures, Sunday morning embraces when she zipped up her daughter's dresses, earth tone paintings on the wall, 
journal entries in her cursive scroll, photographs she took, her fingers out of focus on the edges of our lives, sunsets sprawling out over cornfields in a town she made her own. Now I'm in a town of my own. I eat my own bread heels. And I find what remains of my mother at the bottom of that plastic croaker bag. I let the contents spill out and breadcrumbs scatter like memories on the countertop. I pinch the pieces between my fingers and in my sweaty palm, I hold all that's left of her. The red-breasted robins embroidered on her apron, the strands of gray hiding in her brown waves, the blue veins on her hand. I used to hold her hand when mine was small over asphalt parking lots and concrete sidewalks and brick roads. The world was an ocean and her senses were shark-like, slicing through the dark water. She carried a map behind her eyes and dad says I have her eyes. Hazel compared to his deep, dark brown. So dark the pupil blends in, but now his eyes blend into the shadows. Now his eyes sink into the bags underneath them. Now his eyes don't meet mine so easily. Instead we sit, shoulders touching, TV's blue light washing out our skin. And she has been dead a decade and the ashes of her pollute the air we breathe. And he is a husband who lost a wife, but I am a child who lost a mother. And I look at this man who cannot look back at me and I wonder if I have lost a father too. But maybe tonight I will bake bread. I will use the old bananas I will save one small thing from shriveling up and dying unused. And I will cut off those bookend pieces and feed them to the birds outside. I will imagine that they took flight from my mother's apron. You know, it's, it's a bar. We can't promise a safe space. Uh, and we're not security guards, right? But we can, we can work toward a radical space and a space that, that holds boundaries and a space that works toward accountability and restorative justice. People come and go. How does that affect the, uh, the feeling of the slam? The city in general has this issue around like belonging like who feels like they belong here right so I think that's kind of like a larger overarching thing and then it's like the realities of employment um, to some extent if you're not working through IU or like very adjacent to Indiana University it's difficult to like maintain a livelihood out here and so you're talking about like folks from the town they're coming out to the slams but you're also talking about like some students undergraduate, graduate, professional, they have a timeline, you know, they have a certain amount of funding. When that funding runs out, usually they've already applied to the next thing and they're going there. The downside is the day-to-day and everyday in Bloomington is changing and shifting so much every single year that it's like, how do you have that home base, you know? Because I still get asked, where are you really from? Because it couldn't be from here is the implication. Even when I had a white ass, whitewashed name, what I'm saying is, God damn, I'm happy to be working towards decolonization. Because I'm over pretending that white enough, pretending that code switching and careful dressing and watching my words will convince anyone that I am white enough. 
I'm proud of my indigeneity. And yeah, my papa may have colonized my mama. And yeah, maybe the Spaniards colonized my ancestors too. But I'll be damned if I can't celebrate my Borican and Incan heritage. the colonizer. But oops. I guess the Incans were colonizers too. My apologies to the Moche and other pre-Hispanic occupation. Andean colonized, and my Assyrian ancestors were colonized a ton of people thousands of years ago too, and then they were genocided a bunch for most of the 19th and 20th centuries. So it evens out, right? Or does it? Because I can't remember. But my body does. Because I carry both their pain and their violence in this almost white enough, not quite white enough body, because I can't untangle being both colonizer and colonized. I don't know what my time is at. Um. Uh, four minutes. Keep going. I mean, keep going. Okay. I'm sorry, y'all. This is a long one. I won't keep be going, in the second keep half. Keep going. I know decolonizing your gender. Oh, nope. I'm on the wrong page. You got it. Right in the back. Okay, now we gotta talk about Bad Bunny. Cause that man knows how to celebrate the body again. But apparently he needs a reminder that he's definitely not white enough. Because apparently he thinks he is. Headlines report, Kendall Jenner and Bad Bunny go horseback riding. Ivanito! Mm -hmm. What is it with you and that white girl? That, white, that culture vulture? Ivanito, you couldn't find yourself a good Borican girl or femme. Sorry, because we got to include me in this narrative. This poem's about me, after all. Ivanito, go home, please, because let's be honest, Kendall's kind of bad for your brand on the island. Mr. Indigeneity, Mr. F*** the colonizers, Mr. Proud of his heritage, Mr. Get the F*** off our beaches, Mr. Refuses to speak English at award shows, Mr. Let's decolonize ourselves, but I'm gonna let myself be colonized by that white girl. Ivanito, you're too sexy to put up with. Little Miss, this Pepsi is gonna solve police brutality. Little Miss... selling bad quality tequila because her name's a brand. Little Miss, oh, Puerto Rico is so exotic and doesn't understand a lapagón. Ivanito, please. I know you've got a white enough persona to uphold, but Ivanito, what I mean is that I'm jealous. I want to be the words on your lips. I want to be your beard. Be that close to your face, I mean. I know that sounds kind of gay, but for the past couple years, you kind of been given he they. I know I'm like 80 points off now, it's okay. Um, I know decolonizing your gender would be bad for your brand. You're the face of reggaeton worldwide, the masculine Latino presence, the public persona of what it means to be a Boricua. Ivanito, be honest. There's no way that white girl even knows what a Boricua is. But I do. Ivanito, stop whitewashing yourself. There's no way you'll ever be white enough. What I mean is I lied. I'd be happy to call that Bunny or Oscar Isaac or Jesus Daddy. That's the line my mom told me was sacrilegious. <laughs> Just not their white enough personas, please. Y'all aren't fooling these white people. I promise they know. So I'ma just say, I've been doing some decolonizing. I've been trying to unwhitewash myself. I promise I've put in the work. God damn, let me show you what this decolonized, never white enough body can do. What I mean is, 
I'm insecure. Insecure that my never white enough body is not brown enough either, is not anything enough. And so I'm writing this to say, yeah, I find these celebrity Latinos attractive. And yeah, I hope they find me sexy too, because I am, duh. And yeah, I hope they'll validate that my never white enough is kind of like theirs, even though I know it's different. Even though I know sometimes I'm seen as just like that white girl. What I mean is that I know my papa never colonized my mama. It just so happens she fell in love with a white man. And yeah, I was a result of that love. What I mean is a lot of mixed kids feel this way. What I mean is I'm not special. What I mean is I'm sorry, Benito. I can't even blame you. I've liked my fair share of white girls, too. <laughs> I would say the transient nature of a college town can sometimes be, be a challenge, you know? There are times some of our most talented participants graduate, and we try to bring them back as features, or they'll come visit during the school year, but that shifts. On the flip side of that, because it's an encouraging space where new participants feel comfortable trying on new hats on stage and living into to their voices as they're often discovering them at the university and uh, taking creative writing classes or writing poems for the first time. The world is kind of opening up right at this stage. There's people wanting to explore that. And so because of that, there's often new and exciting energy that comes through the show each month and then, and then year after year. And that's really exciting to see. I want the slam to be like in less of a position of scarcity and, and more of a position of abundance. And that might mean, you know, really leveraging ourselves as a nonprofit and really embolden the slam, bring out other features. The slam can't be our full time job. And because of that, um, it's largely a labor of love. You know, we don't we don't walk away with money in our pocket from the show. We do it because we love it. And um, we pay our features from the cover charge. The five dollar cover charge, right, is what pays our features. So only five dollars. <laughs> you can't afford not to go. Um, so, yes, it would be nice to get to a place where um, we maybe had some volunteer grant writers or sponsors for the show because we're we're, we're putting in the work right now to make it happen on our own. It's like a, a metaphor, right, for diasporic people all over the place, right? It's like you don't really have this home. Home is constantly shifting. Home is something you bring with you. And so I think it helps me kind of like thinking about the slam even in that way, right? It's kind of like we could take this other places, right? because this is something that we bring with us and it's there when we are there and then when we leave it's not there right but it continues to be with us that was produced by wfiu's violet baron if you're listening on the day the podcast drops friday october 20th there's a slam tonight at 8.30 at the Bishop Bar in Bloomington. The next one is November 10th.
Okay, we've got your quick moment of slow radio coming up. But first, the credits. You've been listening to Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. If you have a story for us, or you've got some sound we should hear, let us know at wfiu.org slash interstates. And hey, if you like the show, review and rate us on Apple or Spotify. And what's even more fun than that is telling a friend. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Violet Barron, Jillian Blackburn, Mark Chilla, Avi Forrest, Luann Johnson, Sam Schemenauer, Jay Upshaw, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is Eric Bolstridge. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. We have additional music from the artists at Universal Production Music. Music in the Teen Story was by Ramon Monras Sender and the Backward Collective. Special thanks this week to the adults at the Monroe County Public Library. That's Library Director Greer Carson, Director of Public Services Josh Wolf, Communications Director Tori Lawhorn, Social Media Specialist Aubrey Dunnick, and especially Teen Services Manager Sam Ott. All right, I hear some found sound bubbling up. That was Oatmeal Cooking, recorded by Patsy Ron. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks for listening. Riding back at the top of the hunter's moon.